Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. Hello, this is Bozi, and welcome to a new episode of the Pharma Launch Secrets podcast. I'm joined today by Frank Dolan. Frank is uh, the founder and CEO of Arsenal Advisors, which is a community of over 38,000 executive peers who work together to shape and share the best practices of the life science sector. Frank's previous work has been included as um, includes being a founder and leader of three pre-commercial biopharmaceutical companies through which he launched over 10 new products, several first-in-class in cardiology, endocrinology, psychiatry, and neurology, and his strong record of increasing company value has resulted in company acquisitions by Big Pharma of over $100 billion. That is impressive, Frank, and welcome to today's episode. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. All right. So let's, I usually like to start with a very high-level question. COVID happened, so it was a black swan event two years ago. So very high level. What is, the, in your view, the single biggest change due to COVID when it comes to pharma launches? When it comes to pharma launches, I think the model was getting stale prior to COVID. Let's face it, a lot of the playbooks were the same. And you know, we did the same things. We picked a lot of the same vendors. We decided to double down on the same channels. And for a lot of years, at least there was a reasonable return. But again, even prior to COVID, it seems like when the uh, big consulting firms take a look at a fair number of launches, didn't necessarily meet or exceed expectations, at least from Wall Street's point of view. We all know internally that could be a little bit different. But I think since COVID, this has really broken traditional commercial launch model quite a bit and for two reasons. Number one is that this post-COVID environment that we're kind of coming into showcased that trying to overwhelm the market with people. And remember their headcount wars of some of the pharma companies over years, more salespeople. And there was an advantage of having more salespeople in a given geography to get that reach and frequency with the messaging to go ahead and launch your product, change the market, change the outlook, prefer your brand's new way of thinking. But the, the second dynamic that has broken the old model and has changed the table stakes is that our customers' behaviors and consuming information how they consume it, what they want to consume, and in fact, even the criteria for consumption, like what's credible and what's not, has fundamentally changed. And so I think that's really the challenge that pharma faces is that marketers, as experienced and educated as they may be, I think that we would all universally agree, we have never seen a market like this before, and we're going to need to adapt. Thank you. Yeah, so so sad. I was actually taking some notes. So I know you have in your experiences, a big part of your experience is focused on first, first-in-class launches. I know a lot of companies are focused on having either first-in-class or best-in-class. So it will be great to dive a little bit deeper in your experience. What are some of the major differences between first-in-class launches and me-too launches, especially now in a, in a post-COVID world, as well as what are some of the biggest challenges? Sure. So I think first-in-class challenges are a lot of fun, even though they're highly complex. And for folks that haven't done a lot of that, I would just simply say that when you're launching a first-in-class product, you have to 
pretty much uh, lay the foundation for the brand to roll over. So if you try to have the metaphor of you've got to cut down the trees, pave the road, smooth things out, and then a car can roll down, the car being the brand, with first in class, you know, there's there's no infrastructure in place. There's no road to go ahead and drive on. And so that means you've got to create three areas of change in the market. Yeah, I mean, the first is in the eyes of the providers. And so when we think about disease states, the story of diseases and how we treat them is often told via the tools that we have available. And when you have a highly differentiated tool, it starts to change the narrative by which people describe the disease state. I'll give you a specific example. I spent a fair amount of my career in the diabetes area. And when we launched a product that treated insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes, I can tell you that six months prior to launch, the concept of addressing insulin resistance was not a big part of the narrative. If you went to a speaker program, if you went to a medical symposia, insulin resistance wasn't a huge part of the conversation. But when we launched a drug that affected insulin resistance, I noticed over the next few years, it became a foundational part of the conversation. So changing the landscape with new tools, change the narrative, change preferences, help providers think about treating things differently in a way that they weren't taught in med school is an extra level of effort and complexity that's different when launching first in class versus a, a me too product. I mean, the other two areas are pretty straightforward. You've got payers, payers may need to think about if you're not a part of the medical guidelines, where do they reimburse you? How do they make a new category for this therapeutic area, this unique entity? And then of course, on the patient side, and the other example I'd give you real quick in that diabetes area, I launched another product that was an injectable product for type 2 diabetes, but the entire competitive landscape were oral medications. And so even if you get the physician on board with the injectable diabetes medication, the patient marketplace was not ready to say, my options are going to be pills I pop in my mouth with a glass of water versus, wait a second, you're asking me to put a needle in my skin and inject this medication? Isn't there another way? And making the patient market understand that we may intervene with a, a different administration, not just first-in-class drug molecule, but a, a different administration than they're frankly used to, definitely creates some challenges. And, and the specific challenge that that could be, that means the most to everybody who's either trying to help patients as best they can, or they're an investor or a stakeholder in a pharmaceutical company is delayed revenue. If patients say no to the doctor's request to give them that first-in-class drug because the patients don't get it, they don't want to take it, whatever it may be, that means that as that market matures, it'll be a delay until you fully realize the potential of that product. And I have so many questions, so many rabbit holes I want to go down to. So when you say first-time launchers, do you mean a smaller company has one or two or three assets, it's the first time ever launching a product, or it's a first one in the category by Big Pharma, but first one in that, in that new category? Most of my experience has been a drug that is first in its class, and the class is highly differentiated. So going back to diabetes, I launched a product that was an injectable drug for type 2 diabetes that was really meant to treat patients kind of earlier on, but all of the existing options for the earlier on type 2 patients were oral. And those are really the experiences that I have. I, I've had them 
in a mix of small pharma. When I started at Takeda back in 1999, it was a small company. There were only really 500 of us when we first began. We all know how big Takeda is today in the US, never mind globally, but also in big pharma as well. Several of the companies I worked for got purchased by big pharma. So we had to launch using the resources and some of the heritage thinking of the larger entities as well. Yeah, got it, clear. And then you mentioned all the challenges of paving the way in infrastructure. And one particularly that you pointed out is a need to establish new concepts. Like example is insulin resistance, right? If, and if, if doctors don't believe in concept A, right, that the insulin resistance is, is a core issue to something, they will not, of course, use a drug that address insulin resistance. So does that mean that one of the core marketing strategies for first-time launcher is disease shaping? Education is in, in your experience, and if you can share anything on that, it'll be great. Like, how big is that? How important is that? Yeah, no, I, it's a great question, and it's a big, big deal. Creating that marketplace to, to be receptive to this new and novel concept is critical. Providers, if we just focus on that constituency, they're so busy. And how do you have stopping power? with a differentiated idea that they don't recognize. They may not be intrigued by it, but if you're offering a different approach to the disease state, maybe they have to look at the disease state different, they have to talk to the patient differently, they have to do different lab tests, you're asking them to take on a lot of effort. And if that particular condition isn't a huge part of their day, for example, I launched an antipsychotic that had a Parkinson's disease indication for hallucinations and delusions. And we were trying to sell that largely to neurologists. Well, if you know much about antipsychotics, well, you realize that it's a lot of psychiatrists tend to be the lead specialty, making recommendations, speaking at symposia, helping to shape guidelines and give advice to other physicians that maybe don't focus completely in psychiatry, but that's really their drug and they, they run the lead. Because this antipsychotic had a Parkinson's indication, a neurologist who is the primary treatment lead for a Parkinson's patient is going to have to have a say on what is involved in the drug regimen for that given patient. And it's antithetical for a neurologist to want to use an antipsychotic because that often works against the drugs and the treatment approaches they take to manage neurological symptoms. So you had, you had conflict with specialties going in. And if there were providers that might want to use that drug I was talking about where treating Parkinson's patients wasn't their primary focus, if they went to the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist is like, well, wait, historically you don't use an antipsychotic on a patient with Parkinson's that messes with their motor skills. And if we go to a neurologist and trying to give advice to another doctor who doesn't specialize in Parkinson's and say, hey, should I use this antipsychotic on my Parkinson's patient? Neurologist is going to say, well, hey, typically we stray away from that as well. You need to go back to psychiatrists. What an incredibly complex situation is we've got to get the leaders of these different specialties who are involved in the care of the core patient we were looking to help with this drug. But the foundations of the drug and the labels uh, that's under, in other words, you know, it's labeled as an antipsychotic, created conflict within the specialties that wanted to weigh in on what you should or shouldn't do. So to create that market, to make psychiatrists realize that they may not necessarily be the lead prescriber of this drug in that particular patient set, but they would be supportive. They need to understand this. This may not be a huge part of their day, but it's important. They need to be conversant on it. 
and then get neurologists to move away from their fundamental training and say, now you do have an antipsychotic that can be used on this patient audience. I know it goes against all of your training, but here's what you need to know. Here's how it works. And this is why it's okay. So with all of that conflict, without creating that market many months ahead of time to have the biggest opinion leaders understand what the value proposition of this approach may be before you have a label, before you can talk about a drug. And for folks who haven't market shaped before, that's really hard. You have to follow a lot of ethical guidelines to talk about the big idea of a change in disease state, a change in treatment algorithms, but you can't talk about the drug specifically. You definitely got your work cut out for you because in areas of differentiation, Every specialty, right from primary care, is going to be looking for the biggest opinion leaders that are known in that particular area for guidance. And if you don't have their ear, if they don't have understanding, it's going to be very difficult to maneuver. And the final comment I'll make as far as the post-COVID question you had, in a post-COVID environment, the market shaping, I think, is even harder because the traditional channels we are used to are compromised. Access to providers generally is inhibited. I took a look at some of the vendor data the other day, and the fact of the matter is, is that face-to-face calls have not returned to pre-COVID levels. In fact, 30% of total calls are virtual right now, and total calls are still down versus pre-COVID. So our face-to-face activity is, is going to be limited in this current environment. So we have to manage for that. What do we do? Okay, what's the next layer of problem? Well, the next layer of problem is that most opinion leaders are in institutions that are inherently low access. And in this post-COVID environment, many of these academic institutions or large teaching hospitals that these opinion leaders may be affiliated with are maintaining a low or no access policy. So how do we get past that? And then the third layer of complexity is if we have access problems, if we have lower total calls than before, if we have a fair amount of virtual calls that look to be a permanent part of our future. How do you get the attention of providers that say, of all the virtual calls I can be involved in, if I don't know this drug, or if I don't know this company, or if I don't know this rep, why should I say yes to that calendar hold? Because the advantages of having people in the field, whether it's pre-launch or post-launch, whether it's medical affairs or whether it's sales, is that if you have more people in Cincinnati, you can either get to more doctors and or get to the doctors more frequently. You have an advantage with geography. With virtual selling environments, whether they're market shaping or post-launch, there's no geographical advantage. It's just a matter of what email do I open? What calendar hold do I accept for the first time? And if that virtual call doesn't go well, Will I want to engage in these future requests for virtual interactions if I don't feel like the story these people have to tell, the value they provide, the things that they're offering me, I can act on right now? So for market shaping, that could be a virtual call that people naturally want to put off in the spirit of trying to minimize outward communications and manage their day so they can go ahead and focus on patients. It makes me think that I'm listening. You mentioned also at the very beginning those changes in behavior that led to reduced access, right? Doctor, which is one of the core problems, which is changing a physician's behavior and also the lower effectiveness of the, you know, have more sales reps model with higher reach and frequency. So the question that I'm thinking about is whether this, this change of dynamics has led to some opportunities 
as challenges are clear, right? So if you're a big pharma, if you're used to, to have a large sales force, first time launchers, let's talk about that. You say, well, I'll start two years earlier. I'll start to talk about insulin resistance or a core concept behind my product. And I have all these resources. But right now, if you're a large pharma and you have all these resources, resources don't matter that much because the doors are closed, right? So there's reduced access. So I'm like wondering whenever there is a challenge, there's an opportunity. So where is an opportunity, right? An easy opportunity for smaller companies, you mentioned geographical presence matters less. Is it for big companies who adopt digital and online channel and content faster? Was it smaller companies that will say, well, I anyways had the constraint of not having all these resources. So let me see what I can do in this new environment. So where are the opportunities? Yeah. So the good news in all of this for our tenured biopharma and life science executives is that what you learned about getting the right message to the right customer at the right time still applies. Unfortunately, some of the calculus in that equation has changed, and I think that's where the opportunity is. So to your point, opportunity number one is that sales force or field presence size matters less today. It, it matters, but it matters less today to your point about the virtual interactions. So if you've got a highly efficient field team with a great digital competency, leveraging virtual interactions, they can get to a lot of people and communicate a lot of things. The second piece here is that the market has changed and, and getting the right message to the right customer at the right time. Maybe the customers haven't necessarily changed for your pharma brands, but making sure that they receive the right message for them at the right time is, is where the opportunities lie very, very much. I think that there's a huge opportunity to be very intentional about the different channels to which you are communicating those messages. And I also think that from a timing perspective, there are opportunities to make sure that in the moment of greatest information need, our messages and our resources are there for our providers. And so when it comes to, to the messaging piece in that channel, I wanna highlight one of the consulting firms recently did a big study. And the question was, is where do you feel are the most important places to find scientific information from an HCP's point of view? And they asked HCPs, and then they asked that same question about HCPs to pharma to see what pharma thought the HCPs would say. And when it comes to getting scientific information from a sales force, as an example, overwhelmingly pharma thought HCPs saw that as most important. They ranked it as number one. That pharma says, I think HCPs would say that getting scientific information from salespeople is number one. What did the HCPs say? They ranked it number 18. The reality is that the channels for a lot of these HCPs are going to have social components. There's an SMS play that's at hand, I think, is really, really exciting. There is this hyper-customization, personalization, hyper-local related messaging that can be deployed. It's not just one size fits all, and we can't use brute force by sending our incredible salespeople to knock on doors that aren't opening with HCPs. So I, I do think that leveraging technology, leveraging channels, leveraging the digital competency represent three of the biggest pots of gold in front of pharma companies, regardless of size right now. I got it. Yeah. A few comments on that. I, I think I, I read that report. It was showing like that pharma thinks like 64% that sales reps are like 64% of executives thinks that's number one source. And then doctors will like 
saying 4%. So I, I forgot the exact uh, question, but I think it was like, how do you access new scientific information as a way of discovering new treatments? So it's 64% versus 4%, like a massive, massive gap in perception. And then the other one is, that was one of the calls with the, one of the pharma prospects, and we talked about that mentality of brute force. And it's interesting how it applies to sending more emails. So let's say your open rate is 20%. All right, so now your open rate is 17%. Okay, so everyone is sitting in a meeting said, well, it's 70%. So what do we do? Well, we send one more email. So we increase sending more emails by 20%. Then after some time, it gets to 10%. What do we do? We double the amount of emails we sent. And that leads to lower open rates. And that's a race to zero. <laughs> so that, that's one of the best examples that I've seen that applying brute force and basically getting yourself out of the business. Now, when it comes to technology, Channels, you mentioned, you know, virtual calls, which kind of bypass the need for geography being there geographically. What's the role of, in your view, role of content and on-demand content? Because a lot of these reports recently talk about doctors want to, to your point, right message, right time. They want to actually have full control of when they access content, how they access content and things like that. So what is in your view role of content beyond the iPad content that sales rep has? Great question. Three things. First is the content has got to get as far to the edge of personalization that you can take that content. Let's face it, we're all consumers. And whether you're talking about a patient, payer, provider, we are getting exposed to communications, to marketing efforts, et cetera, that are becoming more and more customized. So if the content can be customized to the customer, I think just generally that's a good practice but this is a very high value call point. Physicians globally, never mind US physicians and EU physicians, but it's a very valuable call point. There are parties beyond pharma that have incredible technological sophistication that want to get information in front of them. And to do that, we know that hyper-relevance, hyper-personalization is key to get people to engage with that. So to me, that's really number one. Number two, is it available both in the time and the channel and the format that makes the most sense for, for that particular provider. And there is a huge move towards video. You know, when we go back to COVID during the first like several weeks of COVID, there were several major pharmaceutical companies in the United States that realized that they had less than a third of their doctors that were on their reps target lists had a valid email address. And so when the world went virtual, they couldn't even, some of these companies couldn't even send emails to their doctors effectively. So it was a scramble to get third party services, buy lists, all this other stuff. Incredible. Well, the world's, you know, kind of, you know, reverted quite a bit. And now what we have to realize is that if you can't necessarily get a salesperson in front of a, of a doctor, that channel isn't as reliable, as effective, can give you the volume that you want. Emails are, let's face it, technology has allowed us to, to kill off a lot of these emails that we don't want to receive from whatever party. And depending on where you live, your provider's one click away from being annoyed to unsubscribing and cutting off that email relationship forever. But having this content in other formats, you know, such as snackable video, is huge, huge opportunity. And then I think the last piece here is that content being delivered from a credible source. And I think the credible source could be the channel. So is there a third party site that they receive the information, whether it's through a medical association, some of the doctor only social media channels, or some other channel that's regarded as kind of unbiased? Or is that same quality content on a branded pharma company's website or, or channel 
will that be embraced? Is it, does it arrive with the credibility the provider needs to not just be exposed to it, not just to necessarily engage with it, but to act on it, which is what we all want. We want people to act on this information and having a, a credible source, credible content, credible channel, I think are gonna be the keys to success, especially if you're thinking about what 2023 looks like from your brand plan. If you don't have highly personalized, snackable, multi-channel, largely video content, I think you're missing the boat. That's music to my ears. As you know, Evermed is, is really, really focused. And, and, you know, honestly, we've been saying something like this to the market because we've been reading market research after market research after market research. And we're talking to a lot of pharma folks and we always come back to that. How do doctors want to engage in this post-COVID world? It doesn't matter what we like or don't like, love or don't love. This is how they want to engage. And everything you said is becoming, the message is becoming loud and clear. And I think the process of adaptation of pharma to that is a little bit painful because there are things that come into that, like how can pharma, for example, produce that content and produce enough of content. Now, Snackable makes it easier because it's shorter. There, there are some other reasons that, it can, that can make it also harder. But then the question is how to set up that content factory, content machinery that can actually deliver content all the time. And then do you start with unbranded or branded? So if you were launching a product today and you want to start with, with, with content, would you start with branded or unbranded? It's a, if it's pre-launch, I guess, okay, we are unbranded first and then move to brand. How would you think about it? Let's say in the scenario of insulin resistance, but apply to 2022. <laughs> <laughs> We've always relied as an industry on leveraging opinion leaders to help shape and share our stories. These were seen in dinner programs for many, many years. Every time we do a national broadcast for a launch, for example, we, we have physician peers, physician opinion leaders help shape and share that story. So the branded and the unbranded, I think there's a home for both of them, but making content with your community just as a general idea is a great thing. If I'm more likely to believe a controversial message from someone that I recognize, I understand, I respect, and I can relate to. When I get a controversial or new idea, especially one that someone wants me to act on as a consumer, and I just say to everyone, think about this from your own point of view. If it's controversial, if it's differentiated, if it's something that people want you to take action on and you are looking for the bias in that individual, like, oh, okay, well, you're talking to me about these three brands of TV sets, you're a Best Buy salesperson, and those are the only three brands of TV sets that you have here. Well, I might have been getting the whole story. Of course, you're pitching me those three brands of TV sets at Best Buy because that's what you sell. I feel the bias in that. And so it'll take me longer to take what may be a legitimate piece of information or a legitimate action to take to move forward because I have a credibility gap that I'm trying to fill because I don't necessarily believe the source. So branded or unbranded, they have their place, but making content with your community, especially with your, your influencers or your opinion leaders, I think is a, a really wise thing because you're going to reduce the natural human triggers of being skeptical, checking for bias, and trying to minimize influences so you can continue to live your life the way that you want to live it. So I think that's really a challenge that pharma has. It's not unique to pharma, but it's one I don't see pharma acting on or taking as seriously as they should. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this. Actually, one of our, our clients has created content steering committee. 
So with 12 Q-Opinion leaders, I thought it was really smart because there are so many benefits. One, you're working together with them, so they are informing your mini curriculum or curriculum of content. So it's more relevant. You, you talk about hyper-relevance. Two, you're building relationships with them and getting to know them. Three, those Q-Opinion leaders, especially if they have digital presence, will share, become authors of the content. And then because they do have following, Twitter mostly, they will share any new piece of content that's out there. So it's basically you're getting free traffic. It's like influencer marketing in other industry 101. So we called it like traffic flywheel because you know you have author of the content who also happens to have a distribution channel who will bring you more people and then feel good because it also elevates their kind of reach as an influencer or a key opinion layer. So it's, it's one of those things that it sounds like simple, but has like so many benefits of so many levels. And at the end of the day, it drives better content and because it's peer-to-peer and it's not, you know, pharma saying, well, we think it's like that. No, it's like co-creation, which is at the end better for for patients. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. Now, when it comes to first-time launches, one one question I have to ask you is, oh, actually before that, you mentioned dinner programs. (laughs) So speaker programs or dinner programs have been always in this under pressure. There has been new guidance from last year to only do them when there is what is called substantive new information, in other words, new products, et cetera, et cetera. We are in discussions looking at, you know, is there is a way to kind of make them on demand and, and things like that. So what would be your prognosis for the future of speaker programs, very high level? I'll put you in the spot. <laughs> I think speaker programs falls into that category of a few heritage biopharma approaches, especially to commercialization, that will always have some place in the arsenal of of tactics that a brand has. I do feel that with more scrutiny, it's becoming more uncomfortable for providers to attend, whether it's people, physicians that are worried about being kind of recorded in the public record that they're receiving as some sort of gift of monetary benefits through dinners, through grants, through other things, and that's in their local paper and their their local patient base is, is not thrilled with that. I think those pressures will continue to exist to some degree. Let's just face it and be objective for five seconds. Our regulators don't love that idea. Whether they're right or wrong about it, they don't love it. And we're going to have to deal with that pressure. But I think if we go back, what are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to create a peer-to-peer environment with healthcare professionals who may be able to ideate with one another and or hear from someone that has credibility and influence so they can do things better, so they can better understand the message or a value proposition and in fact act on it. And if we go back to that true north, if that's our real goal, are there ways that we can be contemporary, use technology and other means to recreate that outcome with some construct of that old experience of a dinner program, but it may not necessarily be in the private back room at your favorite local steakhouse. I I think things are changing. It's not going to go away, but it's not going to get easier to recruit and execute. Got one other tricky question. Doctors also want kind of experts on demand, ability to ask a question asynchronously, like a synchronous Q&A, when they want, how they want, get an answer. That's something that already exists for years, like virtual advisory board has been have been running like forum-like an environment for years. But now we're that to scale L to KL. Now we're talking to regular clinicians to keep in leaders. 
the first thing that some of the pharma folks we talk to say, well, you know, what if someone says this? <laughs> what if they mention adverse event? So, and then sometimes we say, well, you know, they can do that on Twitter also. <laughs> so it's better to actually address the things that can be addressed and say other things that you cannot be addressed. Let's say, let's say off-label use. Those are the questions we cannot address. There is a way. Your prognosis for that, do you think you had a crystal ball? Do you think that pharma will encourage more those peer-to-peer -peer interactions online or simply try to kind of switch off the comments or switch off any <laughs> interaction? That's a great question. I think that there's two problems that pharma faces when it comes to that. The first one is that some of those peer-to-peer -peer consults, maybe not as formal, maybe not as scripted, maybe not as thorough, are already happening between providers on social media and other channels as we speak. So if that exists, does pharma have a role in helping to ensure that that opportunity for peer consults can occur, but done in a compliant and safe environment? And so like, what role do I want to play, especially if it matches up to you've got a product that perhaps is a, a bit differentiated, not intuitive, legitimately needs counsel? Do you want, are you so committed to patients and providers that are dealing with this disease state that your drug addresses that you want to participate in helping that educational transaction that might or might not result in the right patients getting the right product? I think it's a question, do I want to participate in that value exchange because of those commitments that I have? And of course, you've got to get past the whole compliance thing, which brings me to my second point. And the second point is that for brands that are struggling with, should we do this or should we do it? And first of all, let me back out. If you have a Me Too product where there's seven different drugs like it, it's really simple, it's straightforward, it's been out for years, there aren't a lot of side effects, it's not a big deal, you shouldn't facilitate peer-to-peer -peer consults. There, there isn't an intellectual journey for a doctor to go on to figure out whether or not they want to use your drug for some pretty straightforward condition in a class of drugs that's pretty straightforward to use. So you have to be in the field of play, I guess is what I'm saying. But to go back to emphasize this, this second point, I would just say to my peers, I would say to my, my marketing teams, let's not make it about you for a second. Let's not make it about us. Let's make it about what's happening in this marketplace. And the fact of the matter is, is that every company that you talk to, every one of the seven biopharma companies I worked for, every single one of them said that they are the most compliant company out there, that they have the highest ethics. Everyone says the same thing. And I don't doubt that in any way. But here's the problem, is that you have small and large companies that continue to get fines because they're doing things that when you read it in the paper, that they don't sound good. So where's the checks and balances when it comes to that? This is a, a tough environment, highly regulated to be, and it's hard to play. So let's do the right things. But those fines are typically for people who really did wrong stuff. And there are a lot of companies that are just as compliant, just as ethical as you are. And are they there providing value for that customer constituency through these types of programs? And if they are, what does it say to that customer constituency that you choose not to help facilitate that valuable, compliant and ethical transaction where there's a share of knowledge between physician peers? At the end of the day, if you shape things correctly, things that can be done, it's not a matter of can we or can't we, it's, it's we can, but it might have to be under this level of rule or comfort for our brand. But to turn your back on it, it's not just turning your back on a tactic. I think that if you're thinking about the competition, if you're thinking about the marketplace, you're, you might be turning your back on the market. And what is that ultimately going to cost you 
not just in share, but in patients uh, that are appropriately served and any level of loyalty, trust, or admiration by the customers that you're peppering with billions of dollars of advertising every day? Is that becoming a catalyst for them to want to interact with you less? I love everything you said. I feel like there is like four quotes <laughs> I want to take out of just the last three minutes. I was paying attention and taking some notes. I feel we probably need another episode at a certain point to just go dive deeper. Even just this last topic alone. The idea I was having while you were sharing your insights is have one episode that is a little bit different, that is like a crystal ball and all kinds of things that ideation, like a brainstorming session. Let's talk about future speaker programs. How can they be? Contemporary version, as you said. Let's talk about the interactions and enabling interactions and scientific exchange being pharma. What are the pros? What are the cons? What may a future be? <laughs> so what are the kind of constraints that need to that we need to work in while delivering innovation? Phenomenal conversation. And for the very end, I love to ask my guests some questions so so people can get to know you better. So I have six very brief questions and answers. They're very straightforward. The first one is, what's your favorite industry buzzword of the year 2022? That's a good question. Catalyst for change. All right. What's the best book you've read in the last 12 months? Snow Leopard by Category Pirates. Absolutely phenomenal. If you are a marketer, if you are a content creator, it is a must read. Love their books, actually. Bumped onto them a month ago. Phenomenal. Love the category, leadership thinking. What's your go-to song when you need some inspiration? <laughs> well, if I'm working out, it might be something by Godsmack, but my morning shower music is a playlist by the Rat Pack. So a little Frank Sinatra, a little Dean Martin gets me feeling pretty great about my day ahead. Groovy, as one person from our team would say, Bill, groovy. Who in the world of pharma would you most like to take for lunch? Oh my gosh, what a great question. He's on the board of several pharmaceutical companies. I worked for him at a company called Amelin. I have a ton of respect for him. And every moment I have with him, I learn a ton. So it would be Dan Bradbury. Very clear. What one sentence advice would you give anyone just starting out in pharma marketing. Make content with your community. Love it. And where can people find you online? LinkedIn is the best place to find me. It's Frank F. Dolan. Just look for that or look for Arsenal Advisors and you'll find me everywhere. Lovely. So thank you so much, Frank. It was a phenomenal episode. Really enjoyed all the topics that we covered and looking forward to connect uh, in the future. I can't wait. This podcast was brought to you by Evermed. Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.